0: Father, we come to you this morning uh, needy, we come to you this morning uh, dependent upon you, Uh, we come to you this morning uh, a people in need of grace and mercy, Uh, a people this morning who come sometimes holding on to the things of this world far too tightly. So Father, help us to see Jesus as the greatest treasure this morning. God, may we loosen our grip on the things of earth to hold tightly to the things of heaven where we would find eternal life, where we find joy, where we find purpose and meaning as you've created us to be and in relationship with you. So God, may this be a time here as we place ourselves underneath the teaching of your word, as your word is is read over us here, as spoken, as we line up our lives next to it to see where we fall short. God, may we be the ones who seek to repent and, and turn. May we never be of people who seek to uh, want you to, to contort to our lives. God, may we always submit to you. God, so help us as we walk through this text this morning to make much of Christ as we submit to you. In Christ's name we pray, Amen. Well, I think it was around uh, 1954, 1955 when uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, had his now very well-known work, The Lord of the Rings, published. Uh, from the very beginning uh, of its publishing, the series took off, and it was one of the most beloved writings of the, the, the following decade, in the 1960s, and even to this day continues to be a, a well-sought-after uh, book. Something in that story that he wrote captivated millions of of readers then and even still today. And though that entire series, all volumes contain almost 1,200 pages to read from beginning to end, that hasn't stopped people from reading and rereading that story over and over and over again. And I think it's because Tolkien captured something in that, that fiction that the human heart longs for. As you read through that, that 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 story, it's a story of adventure and a story of mission and of purpose. It's a story filled with difficulty and, and suffering and loss along the journey. As you read through it, there's these epic battles to be fought. And in the end, in the end, it's the story of an unlikely hero a simple hobbit who lives tucked away in the shire and a comfortable corner of middle earth where nothing exciting, nothing ever dangerous, nothing ever adventurous ever happens. And yet this unlikely hero embarks on this remarkable journey. And as the story concludes, this, this simple nobody that everyone in the world had just forgotten about, this, that everyone in the world had, had not given a second glance to is the hero of the story. Tolkien captured something that humanity's heart resonates with, a sense of adventure, a desire to be part of something that's bigger than oneself. The Lord of the Rings story is is one of self-sacrifice. Frodo, he leaves the comfort of his home, like I said, the safety of his home, the familiarity of his home. He leaves behind his family and his friends to join on this epic mission that is far-reaching and world-changing. It was a a call to self-denial to self-sacrifice, and in the end, though, the benefits that, that he received and that the, the, the rest of the of Middle earth received and rewards, they, they outweighed the risk and the loss of the temporary comfort and treasure that he had back at home. I can't help just but think of that, that story as I, I read through this, this passage from Mark 10. Uh, for the past couple of chapters, especially Jesus' main thrust of teaching has, has been on, on, on the cost of discipleship. What it looks like to, to take up your cross and follow him, as Jesus says in Mark 8. I mean, ever since Mark chapter 8, when Peter has rightly confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus' tone is, is, has kind of changed. His teaching has begun to shift. He, he immediately begins to, to speak of his impending death, his resurrection that must happen. He tells all then that who would come after him, all that would follow after him, that they too then, must they need to deny themselves. They need to lose their lives, meaning this, they need to let go of the things of this world. Stop chasing after the the temporary comforts and instead come and find true and meaningful and lasting and joy-filled eternal life in, in him. And, and so right after saying these things in, in Mark 8, he, we see in Mark 9 Jesus' transfiguration. He's seen before a few of his disciples in his glory, right? So he's the one then that's that's worthy of of, of these statements. The, the one who's worthy of our lives, the one who's worthy of our devotion, our submission to him as Lord. He's the one that is the greatest treasure above anything else this earth could ever put before us. And so because of this, we're, we're focused on living lives and this glad submission to him as Lord. This is what we begin to see through Mark 9. We, we, we kill sin in our lives. Anything that's going to hinder us from our pursuit of, of Jesus and knowing Jesus, we run away from any temptation that would seek to rob us of our pursuit of this great King of Kings. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that, that our marriages and our relationships are to reflect the glorious gospel of Christ as a Husband and wife come together in a one flesh pursuit of Jesus. Last week we saw that this kingdom that that Jesus is is bringing is is to be received like a child simple, humble like faith in Jesus. A Jesus, a a King, a Savior who is sufficient to save, who's worthy of our praise. And now, as we see today, we're called to renounce the treasures of this world, let go of the things of this world, and instead let's cling to the greatest treasure, right? The greatest treasure, which is Christ. And let's join in with him on this mission of seeing God's kingdom advance to the ends of the earth. We need to let go of self-centered righteousness, man-centered theology, earthly comforts to cling to the, the greatest good, the one worthy of our lives, the one worthy of our devotion. And it's only there and it's only then that we find what our hearts and our souls yearn for. Right? Adventure, mission, purpose, eternal life, joy. It's in Christ we find what our hearts long for. You see, the problem that we're going to face, especially in our, in our culture, is that, is that the air that we breathe is the allure of comfort and the, the allure of things and the, the allure of wealth. It's, it's so strong and it's so appealing. And the threat of losing it all, the, the, threat of, the, the threat of giving it all up to pursue Jesus above all and with that then facing that comes with Jesus, persecution and oppression and, and, and a life then that's walking truly by faith and a, a God who is, who is unseen but a God who is a good provider and one that we must depend upon to, to provide for us. It just runs in stark contrast to the very air that we breathe today. It, it runs in stark contrast to, to American or Western individualism that I don't need anybody I'm sufficient in and of myself. And not only that, but just as as human beings, we're we're prone to self-righteous acts. Meaning this, that we we want to be our own savior. I don't want anyone to save me. I don't want anyone to help me. I want to do it myself so I can stand on the edge of the cliff and beat my chest and say, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. See, this faulty thinking, this faulty thinking that we can save ourselves through self-righteousness this faulty thinking that humanity is basically good, that we can figure it out, that all we need to do is just get our act together. We just maybe need a little guidance to get over that hill, but, but, but I can do it, and I can set my life in order. This needs to be destroyed, this faulty thinking, and Jesus will do that. See, we need to understand that mankind is not inherently good. We cannot be both the problem and the solution. Right? We need to look outside of ourselves. We need a sinless Savior. Jesus is, is going to, in the text here, redefine good. He's going to warn of the dangers of resting in, in temporary earthly treasures. He's once again going to call people to deny themselves. Let go of the things of this world and come follow me and you'll find life. Will there be risk? Yes. The journey is going to be difficult. The journey is going to be wrought with battles and pain and suffering. The journey, on that journey, we're going to face persecution and oppression from the enemy. As we'll see, the reward of what we gain in Christ far outweighs anything that we might lose this side of heaven. So this is what we see in the passage today in these verses that were read. We see this, that the journey of discipleship is one of self-sacrifice and self-denial. It's a path that few will travel. But for those who do, they will find eternal reward. And so as we dig in this morning, again, remember what Mark's focus is in, in his gospels. He writes down these interactions that Jesus has with people. The, the focus is the, is the kingdom of God. focus is the kingdom of God, revealing Jesus as the rightful king of kings, right? The, the servant king. The kingdom is received, as we saw last week, like a child Faith like a child, humility like a child. Discipleship involves unflinching submission to this, to this great king, a denial of self and earthly riches. It involves the murder of sin that's going to tempt us to wander away from the great servant king. And so this interaction that Jesus now has with this rich young man in Mark 10 is, a, is another moment for us to examine our lives. It's another moment for us to examine our hearts, to examine our souls, to make sure we are, we are not like this rich young man, this rich young ruler that we're letting go of anything that would hinder us from following Christ, the King. He's calling us to greater things, a a mission, an adventure, where we live for something bigger than ourselves. It goes on and on for all of eternity. This is what we see in Mark 10 here in this interaction. I've got five points for us to consider as we walk through this text this morning. Five points that lay bare the state of the human heart, um, our need for redemption, uh, the, uh, redemption that comes from outside of ourselves. And, and once again, this, this call to follow Jesus, the supreme treasure of our lives. And so let's journey through this text this morning. I quoted verse 17 just a, a second ago, but I want to read through it again. It says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, this goes back to this idea that we want to be our own Savior. We hear it in, in what he said. Right? What, was, what must I do? What do I need to do, Jesus, to inherit this eternal life that, that, that you speak of? And so this first point that we see is, is the question that we all ask. The question that we all ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's, what's this question reveal about the state of humanity? Well, this, is, this question that we see this man asking in verse 17 is really one of life's ultimate questions. It's, it's a question when you really think about it, a question of importance. Our significance, our destiny, our future. All right, if you want to extrapolate this question out a little bit more, it's a, it's a question regarding existence, purpose in life. Right. What's, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning in death? Right, is, is death final? What happens when I die? Right, what matters most in life? These are ultimate questions that, that human beings ask. Have you ever asked questions like those? Most of us, I would I would venture to guess that we have. We've thought through these things. These are life-changing, life-affecting, life-altering questions. And the answer to those questions matter a lot. But as one author put it, questions like these, these ultimate questions that we ask in life, questions like these connect to one another, which means this, that your answer to to one is going to influence how you're going to answer all the other ultimate questions in life. So these, these questions matter. They've been asked since really the beginning of creation of humanity. This, this young man who uh, approached Jesus was, was asking an ultimate question. It was a, it was a question about destiny, about life after, after death. What do I need to do, Jesus, good teacher, so that my life, my future is secure? That's what he was asking them. Yet Jesus' response, as we'll see in just a second, he's going to seek to expose actually what should have significance in his life now. Again, Jesus is going to draw this, this man's attention to another ultimate question, right? What, what matters most in life? What matters most in life? What takes priority in your life above all other things? And this is where Jesus is going to, it's going to take him because he knows that his answer to that question is going to actually help him answer the, the first question on his eternal destiny, Again, this is all these questions are connected together. What, what has priority in our life is going to help us understand the answer to the question of what, what comes after death. What is eternal life? Where, where do I find it? The problem or what Jesus is going to expose in this man's heart is that he's, he, he's though not going to be willing to have his life shaped by what should have first priority in his life. Which would then, if his life would be shaped by what should have first priority in his life, then, then, then his life would be shaped Right? And, and he'd find an answer to the question he actually was asking. Right? This is what Jesus is trying to do in this man's life, in this interaction. You see, this is the problem that, with the state of the human heart. We, we ask a lot of times these ultimate questions, but, but we want to answer to those questions that we ask to be something that is easily attainable. Something I can do. Something I can manage. All right? so, that, so that my life, our lives, don't have to change too much. Right? Or if change is needed, okay, I, I want to be a change that I can still control, manage, manipulate. And, and so this is what Jesus is going to push at this young man here. He's going to pull him into something deeper and say, are you willing to have your life submitted to this? We should have first priority, which will then answer the question of what, what happens and how do you attain eternal life? But as we're going to see and as you heard read, This man's going to walk away disheartened, not willing to have his life submitted to what should have priority in his life. See, Jesus is all about turning our world upside down. Jesus is all about wanting to shake us and rattle us out of our self reliant self-dependent, self-centered mode of of life, and he wants to call us into something greater. See, that's what he does here as he he begins to respond to this, this man here. See, check out verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, this is point number two we're going to see in the text. He's going to redefine good. He's going to redefine good. Now, now, how did Jesus answer this man's question? He answered it with, a, with another question. Have you ever had someone answer a question you had by asking you a question? Kind of annoying, isn't it? You're like, I just want an answer. Just give me an answer. I don't want you throwing more questions at me. But, but who, though, like in, in, our, in our day and age, who, who like loves to ask questions the most? Or maybe the better way to, to ask that question is, who likes to, to answer questions with questions the most? Teachers. Teachers love to ask questions. Why is that? When you're sitting in a class and you're like, it's always, you know, growing up, like I would ask a question, and they would ask me a question, I'm like, oh, I just wanted the answer, right? Now you're making me think, right? But that's why teachers love to ask questions, because it gets you to think, it, gets you, it doesn't give you just mere information to, to just memorize and then regurgitate later. No, they're getting you to try and think through and come to the answer, come to the solution. See what the issue is. See what the problem is. See, teachers understand that the best way for your mind to deeply engage with something is to ask questions and to think through things. We learn and we grow when our minds engage with a topic, with a subject, not just when we memorize facts. See, how's this young man address Jesus in verse 17? He says, good teacher. So Jesus is like, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God alone. See, Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows what this man's resting in. He knows where he's at. He knows where he's misunderstanding the, the nature and character of God, of salvation, of grace, of mercy, of, of, of goodness, of sin. He misunderstands it all. So he wants to try and get this man to, to dig in and see it himself. He knows he has a wrong view of his of moral goodness. We see that in the coming verses, and so to get to, to where this man's initial question can actually be answered, he has to first tear down his improper view of, of morality, of goodness, and redirect the attention off of himself, which is where it is currently. Right? What must I do? Right? So his attention's on him, and Jesus is saying, "I need to redirect it. You need to get your attention onto God, which is where it should be. There's no one good except God alone." So he's trying to tear down and rebuild at the same time. And so it seems as though Jesus isn't answering his question when he asks this question back to him, but he really is. This man thought that that it was his inherent goodness that would save him. He just wanted to make sure that, listen, I want to make sure all the I's are dotted. I want to make sure all the T's are crossed. So he comes to Jesus and and almost like with this laundry, here's all I've done. Here's all I've done. Am Am I missing anything? Good teacher. Am I missing anything? This is my life. And in essence, he's saying, listen, I'm good. I know I'm good. Um, you, you seem to be good, good teacher, right? So is there anything else I need to, to do? And Jesus just flips the script here with him, turns his world upside down. Only God is truly good. Only God is truly good. He's saying, listen, you think you're good. You think you're good. You're not. You're not good. You think you've got everything put together. You don't. You're not good. Only God is good. If we're going to rightly answer and understand life's ultimate questions, we have to begin here as well with a proper defining of what truly is good and what is not. And hear me, you are not good. I am not good. This is your first time at Calvary. Welcome. But here's here's why it's the most loving thing that we can say. Because when we can redirect the attention off of ourselves, we can finally turn our attention to that which can actually save. All right, so it's, it, it sounds harsh, but it's not. It's, it's a loving statement. When, us, when we dig into what Jesus is saying here, you're not good. Only God's good. We need our attention on him, not on you. And it's only when we can begin there that we can rightly start to understand the gospel. When we can all, all of a sudden start to rightly see who Jesus is. Our need for grace, our need for forgiveness Right? This is a beautiful spot for us to, to start. And this is why Jesus takes this man here who's resting in his morality. See, our hearts are intrinsically rebellious and cold and dark. Scripture would call us blasphemers, rebels, sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A few verses earlier, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, right? No, not one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it, we are not good. Only God is truly good in the complete and perfect sense of the definition of good. See, if we compare ourselves just to one another, well, then it's a different story, right? Like, even in this room, I can be like, well, I'm probably morally better than, like, some. Just like you can be like, there's people in here that are morally better than me, right? if, if our comparison is humanity, then, of course, like, no, I can, I can probably make an argument for my goodness, Right? I'm, not, I'm not like murdering people. So like if that's the standard, then yeah, we're good. But that's not the standard. The standard is a holy God. And if we're standing next to a holy God, we're not good. It, it's, why, it's why Isaiah gets a, a vision of the throne room of God. The, 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 he comes into the presence of the throne of the majesty of God. And the angel's coming around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy. And here's Isaiah who, let's just be honest, if, if his morality was stacked against my morality, he, I, would get, I would get smoked. Right? And, and yet here you have Isaiah who falls to the ground and says, Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. When John, the, the, the apostle, gets a vision of the, the, the risen and, and glorified Christ as he is, is about to write the book of Revelation, he it says he falls to the ground like a dead man. Right? Like, we are not good. We are not good. And we gotta make sure we have the right comparison. We don't compare to one another. We compare to holy God. And when we do that, yeah, the heart is deceitful, desperately sick. This man here was resting in his goodness. He was thinking he was sufficient. He was comparing himself to others thinking he had had it all together, put together. And so Jesus is going to use the very law that this man rests in, believes in, thinks that he's doing well. He's going to use the very law that this man was hoping in to expose his heart. This is what we see in verses 19 through 22. Follow along. It says, For he had great possessions. I believe Luke's gospel would say he was extremely rich and he didn't want to give it up. This is point number three. Point number three is that the law exposes us, the law exposes us, it lays us bare, it shows us who we truly are. Do you see what Jesus does here in in this interaction, this conversation he has with this man? Again, this, this, this rich young man who is hoping in his moral goodness and in his perceived obedience to the law. So, so where does Jesus take him? He's like, well, let's go to the law. Let's go to the law and see how, how you're doing. All right? And so, so he's going to use the law because he knows the purpose of the law is to expose us, to, to show us where we fall short. So he says, you, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder. Don't commit adultery, don't steal. So he's he he as and as he's taking and as he's talking, you can picture this young man kind of as he's hearing Jesus say these things. Don't murder, don't, don't commit adultery, don't, don't defraud. You can see this man almost nodding along, can't you? Like, yeah, I've I've, I've obeyed them all. Check, 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 check. Got him, got him. And you can see that even in his response, I've 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 done all these things for my youth, Jesus. I've done all of this. That it? Eyes got it, T's crossed, I'm good. See, at this point in the conversation, I, this young man is probably standing here with, with a lot of confidence. I've done it. Good. Now, externally, he probably wasn't too far off. He probably had outwardly obeyed these, these commandments quite well. I don't think he was a, a serial murderer and he was hiding it. He's like, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't defrauded anybody. I've, I've honored my, my parents. Like, outwardly, he, he had obeyed these commandments. And so I think he was sincere in his conversation with Jesus here. I I don't think this is just me reading into it, but I don't think he was being arrogant or prideful, at least at least trying to be. I think he was, without even really fully noticing it, but I don't think there was a lot of arrogance or pride that was necessarily in his voice. He was just so tragically confused and misguided regarding the purpose of the law. That's why I believe it says of of Jesus in verse 21 that Jesus looked at this young man and and heard his response in Jesus' heart. You just see this heart of compassion that's being moved. He, he loved him. He genuinely loved this guy. And, and the way in which he was going to show his love for this, this man was by exposing his heart to where he's falling short of God's standard, of God's glory, and where it needs to be redirected. So Jesus here is quoting Exodus 20. It's the Ten Commandments. right? He's referencing the last six or so commandments that we see in them. Right, so don't murder, don't steal, don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's referencing about the last six or so commandments. Now, Jesus could have used even those commandments to expose this man's heart. This man was still guilty, just didn't grasp it, didn't understand it. If you if you read through Matthew five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows as he teaches through the through the law even here that we're, that we're all guilty of violating all of God's commands. So, so he says in Matthew 5, though you've heard it said uh, you should not murder anyone, he says, listen, if you've harbored anger in your heart towards a brother, then you're guilty. Though you may not have committed adultery, if you have lust in your heart for someone that's not your spouse, Jesus says you're guilty. But Jesus went a, a different route here to expose this man's sinful heart because he knew this man's idol. He knew his idol. And he wanted to, he wanted to use the law to show here's where you're guilty, here's where you're not good. And here's why you need a savior. See, Jesus takes them to the first commandment. Takes them to the first commandment. He says in verse 21, Okay, I hear you. You, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Come follow me, and you're gonna find a, a greater treasure than anything you could experience in this world. You see, what's the first commandment that God gives in Exodus 20? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods before me, besides me. I'm it. In fact, when someone comes to Jesus and asks him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What's Jesus say in Matthew 22? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what's Jesus telling this man to do? Love God more than earthly treasure. And love your neighbor by giving everything you have to go serve them. Jesus isn't saying that the act of selling his possessions would save him. Salvation, again, it's not by works. It's by grace. He's letting, though, the law of God expose where we're guilty, where he's guilty of violating God's law, the very law that he thought, I've done it all for my youth, and he's about to show him, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. He doesn't love God more than he loves anything. He has another God that he's worshiping at the altar of, and it's the God of money, riches, wealth, possessions. And Jesus knows this. You see, what's discipleship? What's Jesus after? What are we seeing through the gospel of Mark? How do we enter the kingdom of God, right? Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, in the end, this man who approached Jesus so confidently now, as we see in those verses, he, he, he leaves with his head down because he was unwilling, unwilling to let go of, of, of really what he thought was the greatest treasure. He was, he was unwilling to, to stop worshiping at the altar of the God of money, wealth, and possessions. And he instead of letting go of those things to cling to a greater treasure, he went away disheartened. You see, the law exposed his guilt before a holy God. He now saw that I, I'm not perfectly and morally good. I'm not... I'm not willing to deny myself, to take up my cross and follow you. See, how about about you, church? Has God's word exposed your guiltiness? Do you see your need for grace and for mercy and for forgiveness? Are you willing, like Jesus continually calls us to, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus? Do do the cares of this world, the things of this world, the treasures of this world have you so entangled that, that to let go of them, to give them up, would cause panic and fear in your life? Do we see Jesus truly as the greatest treasure to behold and to follow? See, this interaction here shocked the disciples. See, check out verses 23 through 27. So after this man walks away disheartened, says Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is our fourth point this morning. Humanity's inability to fix themselves. Humanity's inability to fix themselves. The disciples were shocked by this interaction and and then even more shocked and amazed at Jesus' words to them. Right? When when, when Jesus says how difficult it's going to be for a a wealthy person to, to enter the kingdom. And it shocked them because to, to, the, to the Jewish people, to a Jewish, Jewish person, they believed that wealth and that prosperity was a sign of God's blessing, of God's favor upon them. And so here they just saw this, this man come to Jesus with this question and a man who, who comes to him and by all accounts had like everything going for him. Like this would have been a guy you're like, man, get him speaking at conferences, Get this guy book deals. Like he has it together. His life is in order. He's extremely wealthy. He is morally good, right? Like this is a guy who seems to have all things going together for him. And then Jesus turns him away, sends him away. This man walks away disheartening. So they're, they're shocked because they thought this is a sign of God's, of God's favor on this individual. Here was a man who was both morally and materially wealthy, and yet he couldn't fix himself. Now, Jesus here wasn't condemning wealth. He wasn't saying that only true followers of his are materially poor and destitute. But the problem with wealth, as he begins to draw them into, the problem with wealth, or at least the temptation that comes with wealth, is that it begins to breed this confidence in self rather than in Christ, right? It, it breeds this confidence in, in ourselves rather than in Christ if, if, if our wealth and what, what we have is not itself subjected to the lordship of, of King Jesus, Meaning that, that every penny that comes through our hands, is, 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 we're called to be stewards of, right? Like it, it comes in and our first thought should be, how, how can I use this for the, the, the kingdom of God? Now, now, it doesn't mean you give everything away. It's not, this isn't a, a ploy to give everybody to give more, right? It's this idea of like, how am I stewarding what God's given me? I need to take care of my family, care, take care of myself. I need to pay my debts, my responsibilities. I need to, to live responsibly, but I also need to live generously. And I need to be a giver, not a, not a hoarder or a taker. Right? And, and so, so he's just saying like, like, the more wealth we receive, the more we, we, we get, the more we want to hold on to a little bit more, the more we begin to be tempted that, like, look what I've done. Man, I, I've earned this because of how good I am in business, how, how, how much of an entrepreneur. I Look what I've accomplished. And this is the temptation that we begin to look internally rather than submit it to the, the Lordship of Christ. The wealthier one becomes, the greater the temptation is, as I said, to hold it rather than to live generously. And the wealthier one becomes, the greater the fear becomes of, comes of losing it. Right? The more we have, the more we might fear, like, what if it all is taken away? What's scary, scary here in Jesus' interaction with his disciples here is that something as simple as money, something as simple as wealth, something as simple as materialistic things can keep someone from the kingdom of God. Like church, do we not live in a materialistic and wealthy society? Now, now this man here is extremely rich, was extremely rich. But, but as we think even just our, of ourselves and our, our status here, compared to the rest of the world, we here in America are, are wealthy. We're wealthy. And if, and if the love of money and possessions and status and comfort can keep us from the kingdom by not submitting it to the lordship of Christ, then that should cause us to examine our lives and our hearts right now. Because we're going to face that temptation, and if, if money and wealth can keep us from the kingdom, make it difficult to enter the kingdom, then we need to make sure, are, is my life pointing and showing that Christ is the greatest treasure? What, what if the Spirit of God impressed on your heart right now to downsize to a smaller home, to move into a, maybe a different neighborhood, a poorer neighborhood, so you could give more away to those that are in need. What would your response be to that? What would your response be to that? Like is it like? like <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I can't go live there. I can't go live in that neighborhood with that school system. Now, again, doing so, again, hear me correctly, doing so is not evidence of your salvation. That is not what saves a person. It's just an, just an example. But if our response to even thinking about that that scenario right now just hypothetically causes a bit of fear and panic and worry like, oh God, please don't, don't ask me to do that. Right? If that's kind of where our mind and our hearts begin to kind of go, because I'm like, I don't want to give up what I have. I don't want, I'm comfortable now, I don't want to give that up. I love where I am, I love my house, my home, my car, I love my school, I love, I love my neighbor. I, like, if, if, if giving that up is like, I can't do that, then, then how are we any different from the man who encountered Jesus here in this story? If this one thing can keep us from truly following Jesus and his salvation harder than we thought, I, I think so, and I think scripture affirms this. Now, it's simple in that it's, it's, it's received like a child through repentance and faith, repentance and faith, but it's difficult, in that salvation is through repentance and faith, right? Do, do you catch the, the, the simplicity of it, but that's actually the difficulty of that. Repentance and faith, yes, repent, turn, and trust in Christ, <sighs> repentance. I gotta I got turn from my stuff. I gotta turn from my sin, turn from the things I hold on to. I have trust in someone that's not me. Do You see the simplicity but also the difficulty of it. I think Scripture affirms this. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." I don't say these things to to scare us, but I do say these things to awaken us. Many in the church today have settled for a moralistic, therapeutic, worldly version of Christianity that is not Christianity. And they think that because they go through the rituals of religion, because they're, they're resting in moral goodness and performance, but they're not actually submitting their lives and following Christ right? And they're not dying to themselves. They're, not unwilling to, they're unwilling to truly sacrifice and suffer for the kingdom, but their primary God is comfort, and their primary God is, is, is status in, in, in the world and likability from others. But yet they attend a church on Sunday. I'm telling you, I think Jesus lays that bare and exposes that, that. That is not what he's after. That is not a true disciple of Christ. I believe, church, like Jesus said, that there's far more people that are on the path that's leading to eternal destruction than those who are on the path that's leading to life. This is why the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If this guy, this guy who seemingly has it all together, everything going for him, if he can't be, and if he walks away disheartened from you, Jesus, then what hope is there for anybody? And this is right, this is right where Jesus wanted his disciples' hearts to be, right There. Right there, who can, right? He wanted his disciples' hearts, our hearts, to be like, right in the spot, like, we can't do it. We can't do it. God, help us. Be merciful to us. Jesus says, with man, yeah, it's impossible, but not with God. See, praise God that salvation is of God and not of us because we can't do it. Apart from the grace of God, we will never willingly give up the things of this world. Discipleship is just far too costly for just a mere mortal to attain on their own. And and that's what we see next. See, look at Peter's statement and Jesus' response in verse 28. As we close out this text, it says, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This here is why we need God's power this is why we need God's presence. This is why we need God's spirit. Point number five is discipleship is costly, but the reward is worth it. Discipleship is costly, but the reward is worth it. The rich young man wanted the reward, but he, but he didn't want what discipleship would cost him. Like, give me the prize, but don't, I don't want to do what I have to do to get it. Just give it to me. He wanted the benefit, but not the risk. He wanted, he wanted a secure destiny, but he didn't want his life to change at all. See, Peter was certainly closer to what Jesus was after, but he still didn't fully understand. And we know this because, because Jesus, when he would speak of his suffering, Peter would rebuke him. Right? Don't talk about suffering, Jesus. You're the king, right? king doesn't suffer, and those who follow you shouldn't suffer either. But, but Peter did understand at least that following Jesus would require sacrifice. And, and, and he and the disciples had left their, their livelihoods to, to follow Jesus. And so they're getting there. They're getting to where Jesus is leading them and and Jesus is going to continue to bring them along and they'll they'll see it after Jesus' death and resurrection. But but, but Peter's getting closer. He knows it requires sacrifice. But Jesus shows that discipleship is going to be costly. It's going to be costly. It's going to cost you your life. It may cost you family. It may cost you land. It may cost you your money. It may cost you your status. It may cost you your job. But the reward will be worth it. The reward will be worth it. And this is why we walk by faith, is it not? The, the reward is worth it. We walk by faith. We, we may lose earthly treasures, earthly status, fame, family for the cause of Christ, but what we receive in and through Jesus is not only better, it is enough. It is the greatest treasure. We may lose our families who don't understand why we would follow after Jesus, but we gain a family through the church, do we not? We may lose our homes and possessions as early Christians certainly did. And even today, many Christians face harsh persecution around the world, but we, but we gain a kingdom. We may lose our earthly wealth, but we gain the greatest treasure in Christ himself. Christ himself makes up for every loss. I'll say that again. Christ himself makes up for every loss. Hudson Taylor, after nearly 50 years Of missionary labor in China said toward the end of his life, he says, I never made a sacrifice because Christ himself makes up for every loss. God's kingdom is countercultural. We live lives that are countercultural. Those who appear to be the greatest are actually the least in the kingdom of God, and those we deem insignificant are the ones who are elevated in the kingdom of God. God just doesn't value the same things that the world does. And if we are citizens of this kingdom, we should live and think more like the king in this fallen and broken world. I love what Tim Culler says as I close. He says this, at the heart of the gospel, is all about giving up power, pouring out resources and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Jesus asked this rich young man to imagine his life without wealth, but only Christ, and then asked him, am I enough? See, we must ask that same question. Is Jesus really enough?